Let's get into the Bible now. Matthew chapter 13 is where we find ourselves. Matthew chapter 13, we are in this little mini-series where we're looking at the parable of the soil, where Jesus talks about these four different soils that this farmer encounters as he's scattering seed, and how these soils are representative of our hearts at different stages and places in life, right? The the hard heart and the shallow heart and the crowded thorny heart and the good heart. So we're in week three. There's a lot of stuff that we've already talked about. So you're kind of entering midway into this conversation, uh, but hopefully you won't feel too lost. We're looking at Matthew 13, 1 through 23, but we'll just read the first few verses and the last few. The first few where Jesus gives us a parable and the last few where he gives us the explanation. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. We will start in Matthew 13, verse 3, where it says, Jesus told many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Skip forward now to verse 18 where Jesus gives the explanation. Verse 18, Jesus says, Now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. We dealt with that two weeks ago. Next two verses we dealt with last week. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. Verse 22, the next verse is for this week. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. And next week, the seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, that you would, by grace, cause us to be Christians in a church in which your word produces a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100-fold. Your word would do a good work in us and bear much fruit through us to the glory of God. And Lord, you know on this day with what's going on, we, we sit before you with heavy hearts and all sorts of emotions and feelings. We pray that our hearts would not only be heavy, but they would be open before you and that you, by your holy word and the work of your Holy Spirit, would search our hearts, 
do a work there of weeding out the thorns and making good soil. Search our hearts, Lord. Show us if there be any wayward thing in us. Teach us, Christ, to treasure you above everything else. We confess we need help with that. We're an easily distracted people. We say together in faith that Jesus, you are preeminent, you are supreme, that you are the best. Cause our hearts and our minds and our lives to dwell in and on and reflect that reality. Please now, Lord, I need your help to teach and preach in a way that's faithful. And we need your help to hear and to obey together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hypothetical question here. What if we somehow gained access, full, unadulterated access to your calendar and your credit card statements? What what if, what if, what if every hour was noted for us to see, accounted for, and every transaction, transaction, excuse me, was laid in front of our eyes? What would we learn about you? What would we learn about one another if we saw every hour how it was spent and every dollar how it was spent? It doesn't take much of a brain to realize that our true passions and our true pursuits would be made obvious rather quickly. Because how we spend our time and how we spend our money, that's what we really believe. How one spends their time and how one spends their money exposes a lot, almost everything, about who someone really is. Now think about that in light of our text. Let's look at it one more time in a different translation because I want us to see a couple key words. In the NIV now, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke, there's a key word I want us to get, choke, The word, making it unfruitful. So the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches, just leave that up for a little bit there, Rennie. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. This is a heart that it's not like the hard heart that we talked about where the word doesn't really penetrate and nothing happens. It's not the shallow heart with some stones and the subsoil that we talked about where it just can't take root. This heart says yes and amen to the word. It receives it, it gets it, it wants it. But then the word is crowded out by this representative thorn bush. There's thorns that are growing here. And that thorn pictures... The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. Now, that, that's, that's just what life is, right? We have stuff we need to deal with and we have money we want to make. And our minds, our emotions, and our thought processes are so consumed with basic questions like, gosh, how am I going to deal with this? Oh my, how are we going to afford that? How am I going to make time for these things? That takes up a lot of our emotional space and our our mental capacity. I mean, who doesn't have too many worries, not enough money, and not enough time? Someone raise their hand. God bless you, brother. (laughs) More time and money and less worries than he knows what to do with. But for the rest of us, 
Now, it's not that Jesus is telling us that we need to, that the answer is to withdraw from the world and escape from all of our worries. That's not what's being hinted at here. Nor is Jesus telling us to forget money altogether and live without it. Rather, Jesus is redirecting our hearts and our emotions to give us, number one, a better place to go with worry. And number two, a better place to direct affection. He has given us through this text, mercifully, a better place to go with worry and a better place to direct our affection. And that will help us when we find ourselves in the condition of the crowded, thorny heart. A better place to go with worry. Let's turn in our Bibles back a page or two to the end of Matthew chapter 11. You'll remember this passage well, and we reference it frequently, but let's look at it again together. Matthew 11, go back to verse 28. Uh, Katie, could you bring me my water bottle from over there, please? Thanks. Thank you. Matthew 11, starting verse 28. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. Let us hear that this morning. The place that we find ourselves. Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. That's all of us at one time or another. Some of us frequently. And I want you to hear the loving, gracious invitation of Christ. He says, come to me. I want you to think about all the other places that we go. Right, sometimes we just kind of go to our minds and we just, are, are you one of those people that you just mull it over and over and you just turn it over in your mind and look at every piece of it and you stay up all night long? Sometimes we have this tendency to kind of go to our intellect and our mind and, and try to figure it out. Sometimes we have a tendency to go to some place where we can just distract ourselves from it. Sometimes we look for numbing agents when we find ourselves weary and heavy burdened. Sometimes there's a person that we really rely on and we go to them. Sometimes it's our good old-fashioned ingenuity and get-it-done-ism and we kind of like, okay, how can I wrangle this thing to the ground and just get this done? How can I figure out how to beat this thing? But we as God's people need to hear this loving invitation where Jesus says, when you are weary, when you are heavy laden, come to me. And I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think we have a lot of pathways down which we wander before we finally come to Jesus with the things that are making us weary and heavy laden. Because, you know, there's some real cognizant effort in coming to Jesus. I'm not talking about a sort of whispered prayer. I'm talking about really leaning into the truth of who Jesus is and the promises of Scripture who he's revealed to be in his person, in his power, the resources available to us us in him. I'm talking about really leaning in to the truth of Jesus and the promises of scripture. Now, you know if you're really leaning in as opposed to just kind of whispering a prayer because you begin to act differently. 
when you're really leaning in, when you're really taking things to Jesus, when you're really surrendering. And here's the key phrase, when you're really trusting him, when you, if you want to put another word on it, when you're really exercising faith in him. Because, you know, faith is the opposite of worry. Worry is the opposite of faith. And we're all going to worry. We all find ourselves worrying. The call in the moment is to come to Christ and who he reveals himself to be in his promises in scripture to somehow cognizantly take these burdens to him and look at the associated promises. He says, I will give you rest. He says in verse 29, let me teach you. Right? We receive instruction and we take cues from so many other sources. But Jesus says, in the heavy times, in the dark times, in the weighty times, let me teach you, he says. And you will find rest for your souls. Lovingly, he gives us this better place. And you know, the, the good news about God is he, he's not too big or busy for any of our drama you got to hear that because there are people in our lives that they're too big and they're busy for our drama, right? And like, you just, you don't even call them. You, you wish you could, you know, they have resources. Be like, oh, I don't want to trouble them with this. I don't want to trouble you with that. Listen, God formed you in your mother's womb and he loves you madly. He knows every cell in your body and every hair upon your head. He is infinitely and intimately concerned with every every detail of your life. And we err greatly when we don't take those things to him. Right? What's that old song? I couldn't remember it at first service. Um, What a friend we have in Jesus. So some sweet old lady wrote down the lyrics for me because I couldn't remember it. (laughs) Oh, what joys we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Because look what the word of God says to us in somewhere in the Bible, the next verse, First Peter. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. Give all your worries and cares to God. Now, in, in the original Greek, that's vivid imagery. The idea there is to roll the burden of them over onto God. You know, that's how worries of this life feel sometimes. They feel like this big, massive burden that we find ourselves underneath and can't get out from under the weight of. And the scriptures say, just roll that thing over onto God because he cares for you. You need to hear that with the ears of, ears of faith. It's nothing that's too small. Roll, is it troubling you? Is it worry of this life? Don't let it become a thorn that chokes out. The, roll it over onto Jesus. The psalmist would concur. The psalmist says, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. And I love this one. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden. The God who is our salvation. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden. Because we are loved by God and the beloved of God, he's intimately and infinitely concerned with the weights of our lives. And we have such a tremendous privilege and blessing in Jesus giving, this, giving us this text where he is giving us a better place to go with worry. Again, we need to apply some cognizance to that, some real like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Otherwise, 
when we don't kind of begin to work from a place of faith and trust, the text is telling us that the word, what we know to be true, and the promises and the precepts about God get choked out in our lives so that there's not fruit that comes from it. Now, how might this work out practically? I tried to think of a, of a couple examples how this might work out. So someone might say to themselves, I know what God's word says about honesty and integrity, but I can barely make ends meet. So I have to fudge my taxes a bit and pad my time card a little. Choke. I know what God's word says about honesty and integrity, but the problem is the but. But I can barely make ends meet. I know what the truth is, but I can't get past my circumstance. So, man, the so is so important. The so is either going to be the act of faith that acts according to God's word and what we know to be true, or the thorny ground of living out the circumstance. I know what the truth is, but so, choke. Here's another example. And these may be silly to you, but I know what God's word says about sexual purity. But I have real feelings and needs. So I have to pursue those or I'll always be alone and unsatisfied. Choke. Another one. I I know what God's word says I know that, excuse me, God's word calls me to generosity and giving and tithing, but I cannot possibly afford 10% off the top. So I'll be generous when I have more to share. Choke. Chokes the word. There's, there's no fruit from the truth that you know. You, you know the truth about generosity, but your circumstance seems to be scarcity, so you're going to function out of that rather than faith. One more. I know what God's word says about forgiving others, but she doesn't deserve it. So when and if she earns it, I'll forgive her. Choke. The word made unfruitful. Knowing the truth, what God's word says, fearing the circumstance, the reality of where we are, the worries of this life. We make decisions according to worry and fear rather than faith and trust. And because God loves us today, he issues us a different invitation, a better place to go with worry. You know, that stuff is just... The worries of life, that's normal life. Making ends meet, physical needs and desires, loneliness, being hurt by others. These are opportunities for us to bear fruit according to the truth of God's word. And fruit would look like choosing faith. Turn back a few more uh, chapters to Matthew 6 and look at something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6. We'll start in verse 25. Matthew six twenty-five. Jesus speaking. Says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. 
whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. Listen, and aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? We need to hear that. We need to hear what Jesus is saying. We need to hear and receive what Jesus is trying to do in our worrisome lives. He's trying to tell us that we have a heavenly father who knows and to whom we are infinitely valuable. Jesus says, look at the birds, man. God takes care of them and you are more valuable than the birds. That's where he wants us to begin to live out of the love of the father. That's what this call is to begin to live out of the love of the Father. Aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? And then he says something very sensible in verse 27. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? No. Verse 28. And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't work or make the clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow hear this, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Jesus asks. See how faith is the opposite of worry? We can function out of worry and fear or out of faith and trust. And and the, the beckon to faith and trust is because of God's love for us, which he proved when he gave his son for us on the cross. Verse 31, Jesus says, so don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Man, those are, that's good stuff from Jesus. So I find when I encounter good stuff like this in the Bible, and there's a lot of it, that what we can do is we can begin to flip the script on what's normally going on. So what's normally going on, what Jesus is acknowledging, is that we have all these worries of life, and that it's taken up a lot of like emotional and mental and spiritual space in us, worrying about being concerned about all these things. And so those crowd the heart. They crowd the mind. They crowd the heart. The picture is their thorns, right? So what if we flip the script and we determine to crowd our minds and our hearts with God's word, God's promises and God's precepts so that those were choking out all the worries and concerns and the fears. See what I'm saying? Should have gotten at least one amen on that one. <laughs> at least just one. It's okay, there's like six, thank you. What if we flip the script on it, Right? I mean, am I the only one whose mind and heart get filled with worries and fears and concerns? So fill it with God's word. As Paul says in Colossians 3.17, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Now I know what you're thinking. You think, gosh, every single sermon from Brit comes down to this read your Bible thing. (laughs) And it does. But really, flip the script. Fill, don't let the worries of this life choke and crowd out. Let the word of God crowd your heart and mind so that it chokes out the place of functioning from fear and worry. 
That's what God has for us in his love. Now, that's a commitment. That's a faith thing. That's leaning into truth, functioning out of truth. Now, a better place to direct our affection. Jesus gives us a better place to go with worry and a better place to direct our affection. Look at the text one more time so it's fresh in our mind and let me point out a key word. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. I want us to grab onto that word. The deceitfulness or that phrase of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. The NLT that we read previously said the lure of wealth. The idea of that Greek word translated lure or deceitfulness is the idea of that which is deceptive and seductive. Deceptive. It's not always what it appears to be. Seductive. Powerful. To move us in wrong directions. The deceitfulness of wealth. Deceptive and seductive. Now, how is wealth deceptive and seductive? I think we could probably talk about that forever but on a very basic, perfunctory level. Wealth can be deceptive and seductive because it seems to promise satisfaction and security. And the human heart always craves to be satisfied and to be safe. God made us that way. There is no heart that doesn't want to be satisfied or safe. Now, we are meant, we are created to be satisfied and safe in God, in his love, in his presence, in Christ. That's what we are meant for. But part of the human journey is failing to see that and receive that and lay hold of that and live into that. So then, because we don't live into that, we start to look for satisfaction and safety or security in other places. And one of the most obvious forces that presents itself is wealth. If we could just accumulate enough, surely then we would be satisfied. And if we just had enough, then we could make ourselves safe and secure. But we, we, we know that's not true, right? Like we, we write rock songs about the fact that that's not true. We watch documentaries of rock stars who discover, like, that's not true. We discover this every single year at Christmas, the after Christmas blues. Even when you get what you want, there's a little tinge of disappointment afterwards. Because God has designed everything in this world to never be able to satisfy you or make you safe outside of him. The great liar of the day is wealth and riches. Deceptive pretends to be something it's not. And seductive. And this fact is not lost on scripture. You know, the Bible has about 500 verses in it on prayer, which is like a big deal, prayer. The Bible has about 500 verses on faith, kind of a big thing. The Bible has about 2,000 verses having to deal with money. Now, why is that? Well, obviously, it's because God loves money and is super into it and wants all of yours. (laughs) No. It's because we love it 
we are super into it and we want all of ours and some of yours. The conflict is that God loves us, but we love money. God loves us, but we love money. And, you know, we we would probably like never say that, right? But what would a careful accounting of both our calendar and our bank statement reveal about us that we weren't willing to admit? And if there's anything in our lives that even competes with God for first place, God in his love will always declare a little bit of war on it. Anything in our lives, it could be a relationship, it could be a person, it could be a position, it could be a paycheck, it could be a passion. Anything in our lives that competes for first place, he's meant to be our first love, the greatest one. God will, in his love for us, declare war on it. Now, he'll do so for two reasons. One is because of his glory. God alone is meant to have first place in everything. God is the only one who is worthy of all glory in the fullness of our affection and our pursuits. God is supreme. God is concerned about his glory, and rightly so. And so anything that we begin to elevate to a wrong place in God's economy, God will come against it. That's what idolatry is, making too much of a lesser thing. And anytime we begin to play with idols, the Bible tells us God always comes against them. Number one, for his glory, because only he is first place, only he is God. But number two, for our well-being. Because God loves us and he is concerned about our satisfaction, and our safety. And here's what idols do. Here's what the idol of wealth does. It promises, but it fails to deliver. And God loves you. And so he doesn't want us to live in that state. He wants us to find full and final satisfaction in him, full and final security and safety in him. So when we start to pursue lesser things, looking for safety and security and satisfaction, God and his love will come against them. Doesn't like idols because he's meant to be number one and he loves us and he knows what they do to our hearts. Look a few verses up. In the text that we're in, Matthew 6, look in verse 19 where Jesus says on this wealth issue. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them or where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21 is very key. For wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, God loves you, so he's after your heart. He knows what our heart does with the accumulation of stuff. And so he calls it out, okay? Verse 24, he calls it out. This is a a declaration of war. He's drawing a line in the sand. He draws it out in verse 24, and he says, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's that calling out of that idolatry thing by God. And that is rooted way back when God was beginning to get his people, Israel, together and telling them what was what. 
Way back in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, this text is rooted in this text. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. This text, Jesus saying you cannot serve God in money, is rooted in that text, God saying you shall have no other God before me. And don't make an idol. Now we think in our culture that that's generally silly and making of little statues and doing whatever, worshiping them. But that's a, that's a real thing in part of our culture and that's a real thing around the world. But generally what it is for us, again, is the overvaluing of lesser things. We not, might not be making little statues, but we are worshiping something else for sure. And the thing about idol worship is the Old Testament teaches us clearly that it's always radically destructive. In the Old Testament, at best, an idol was a non-entity. There was nothing behind it. It was a made-up God that the people made up. And so they were crying out to, they were hoping in, they were searching for satisfaction and safety in something that wasn't there. How cruel. At worst, they were demonic and satanic. The Old Testament And the New Testament tells us that there were demonic powers behind some of the idols of the people. And the people were desperate, as we are, in their search for satisfaction and security. And so they would do desperate things in trying to appease these idols. And that's where we see some of the more horrific displays of humanity in the Old Testament. People sacrificing radically things on the altar that should never be sacrificed to these false, cruel gods. And you know what the Bible's telling us? You know what Jesus is trying to save us from? The fact that wealth is a false, cruel God. And we too will sacrifice almost anything, things that should never be sacrificed for it. We'll sacrifice our marriage for it. We'll sacrifice our parental responsibilities and place with our kids for the pursuit of more. We'll sacrifice other people on the altar of getting ahead. We'll sacrifice our integrity and indeed our very humanity in the endeavor for more. Now, it's not that having more is wrong per se. It's not a contradiction to be both wealthy and a Christian. You can be a wealthy Christian. That's not a problem. Sometimes God blesses people with lots of money. The issue is not the money or how much you have. The issue is the heart and what it does with it. Right? And that's why the Bible talks about it some 2,000 times. I'll just share a couple verses about it. There's 2,000. Give me at least eight. (laughs) Next one, Rennie. Yep, thank you. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. You could deal with that statement forever. Godliness with contentment is great great gain. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Remember that bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins? The devil made that bumper sticker. So if we have enough, does someone in here have that? That's, (laughs) who would confess that at this point, right? You're like, second set of worship, you're out there scraping it with a key. (laughs) 
So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. That's hard and sobering. Here we go. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Pause right there. That is the perfect picture of idol worship. Harmful desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. What does God have in mind? God has in mind first his glory and second your well-being. And that in his glory you might find satisfaction and safety. Idols promise they never deliver. So they plunge us into foolish and harmful desires, ruin and destruction. Now look what it says in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is morally neutral. There's nothing wrong with a buck. It is, again, a heart issue, the love of money that creates all sorts of evil stuff. And here we go. Here's the person that is pictured in our text in Matthew 13, 22, the crowded, the thorny heart. Here they are. And some people craving money have wandered away from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. That's the thorny heart there. And the great uh, invitation, adventure, reality of Christianity is finding all of our satisfaction and our safety and our hope and our joy in Jesus. And that's, you know, in one sense, that's automatic by the work of the Holy Spirit because who God is. But Jesus already told us, man, your life is going to have all sorts of worries and all sorts of wants. We've got to bring that thing to Jesus in faith all the time and like really lean in. It's challenging that way. Paul continues on his rant about money later in the chapter and says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. Notice, God bless you. Mega sneeze, Fred. (laughs) Don't look, you'll embarrass him. Look over there. It was Bruce. Notice it doesn't say like if you're rich, you got to get rid of your money. That's an anti-Christian thing. It doesn't say that, not at all. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. That's doable, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Now listen, by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the, for, for the future so that they may experience, what does it say? True life. That was the invitation of the text of Jesus in Matthew in the parable of the soils. He's trying to draw us into true life. Life so often feels like thorns and a cacophonous crowd of distractions. But true life is finding all of our wealth in God and in Christ and his love and what he's done for us. The issue is one of heart, our affections, our passions. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So be careful what you treasure. Remember last week, watch diligently over your heart because all the issues of life come from it. I found this good advice in Psalm 62 this week. It said, if your wealth increases, don't make it the center of your life. That's a good one, right? Because first of all, we all want our wealth to increase. Who doesn't want their wealth to increase? Who's like, yeah, I just wish I had less money. There's like a few of us, but you're not here. 
we all want our wealth to increase. That, that's okay. That's okay. But then it says, don't make it the center of your life. That's idolatry when it becomes the center of our life. What level-headed advice from the Bible? Jesus isn't telling us to live without passion or treasure. He is redirecting our passions and rightly assigning himself as the treasure. It's not that we're aiming too high. It's that we actually aim too low. There's more satisfaction, true satisfaction, and true security in the person of Christ. He's calling us to aim upward. To live in that place like the psalmist who said, your unfailing love is better than life itself. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. Doesn't that sound good? That's the end of the sermon. So what should we do with that? You satisfy me more than the richest feast. You know what I, I think we should do with this is We should be honest with ourselves and with God where that is not a true experience for us right now. God knows everything anyway, so you're not going to surprise him today. It's like you say, oh God, you know about this thing? He's like, yeah. But maybe through the preaching of the word and the reading of the word, maybe the Holy Spirit is helping us realize some areas of unmet satisfaction of fear of worry where we're not living from that place of God's love. Maybe he's showing us those things and just be honest with it about, uh, about it with yourself and with God and just say, God, I, I want to live like the psalmist believing that your love is better than life itself and you satisfy me more than the richest feast. But I got to tell you, I'm running after this thing because I think I need that to fulfill me. And you might've never said it that way, but now you're thinking about your calendar and your pocketbook and you're like, yeah, I might have some idle things there some idol issues. Just be honest about that with God today and pray something like, Holy Spirit, search me and see if there's any wayward thing within me. And then Holy Spirit, help me to be aligned with God's love. Romans 5, 5 says it's the job of the Holy Spirit to pour the love of the Father into our hearts. Jesus said in the latter chapters of the Gospel of John that it was the Holy Spirit's job to lead us into all truth. So say, Holy Spirit, lead me into all truth and overwhelm me with the love of the Father and lovingly confront my deep, deep idols and let me find Christ as the source and the center of all my joy. We need real help from God to do that. Because our lives are thorny like that text. Lots of worries, lots of wants. So let's do that today. And you know, like, let's give ourselves to prayer. Church that prays together stays together. Let's be a church that prays. You know, if you're dealing with this stuff today, pray. In a couple minutes, prayer team will come up here. These are faithful men and women full of the Holy Spirit who love you and pray for you regularly. And they're up here to help you. So if there's anything going on in your heart where there's like a disconnect or you need help or there's something that needs to be confessed so that someone could pray for you and pray for healing, like let's do that. Let's actually be a church that prays, right? What was that old song? I wrote it down. An old lady wrote it down for me. Oh, what joys we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So if there's something going on in your life today, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord earnestly. Come get on your face before the Lord on the carpets. And then today, in light of what we're going through as a church and our great failures, today is a good day to remember the cross together by celebrating the Lord's Supper.
Come and take his body broken for you. His blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Amen? Thank you, Father, for your great love for us and your word to us. And Lord, in your love, confront those places where we're living out of fear rather than faith. Confront those places where we made too much of lesser things, our idols, and lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. Lord, as was prayed earlier, we accept your chastening hand. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Lord, if, if we just need like from the spirit real rebuke today about danger in our lives, sinful ways that we're going or wandering in our hearts, would you, because you love us, convict us of sin and righteousness by your Holy Spirit and teach us, lead us in the way that we ought to go? Lord, would you please remove out from underneath us today all of our excuses and our justifications why we ought to continue to do this thing that is sin and lead us to a place of repentance. And as we repent and confess, would you please flood us with your grace and your mercy and a fresh experience of your love. And as we would repent, would we experience times of refreshing that come from being in your presence. Thank you for the gift of repentance and confession. Thank you for the spirit who knows the mind of God and searches our hearts and minds and leads us in the way that we ought to go. Jesus, we are yours. We are your people. Work in us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.